Well, I'm sorry to say this morning that my foot is getting better. I was really rooting for some kind of a hairline fracture or some kind of a break or something, but on Friday, uh, Angie had had enough of my belly aching, and so she said, go get an x-ray. So I went into the walk-in clinic. They said, it's a three-hour wait. Go home. All right, cool. So they called me and went and had the x-ray done eventually, and it proved to just be a sprain. Uh, my first one in my entire life happened at a middle school camp. There you go. Oh, Lord. So um, I'm going to see how much I can milk this for all it's worth because there's certain parts of camping that I don't want to do this next week. And so that's, that's kind of where I'm at. <clears throat> now, today we're going to be continuing in a series that we've been going through in the book of Nehemiah. Um, called Rebuild. Uh, the cool thing about the book of Nehemiah, it's a history book. Uh, just when you thought history could be just really dull, um, there's a lot of action that happens in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, not as much as the book of Judges in the Bible, but we're not going to go there today. Um, but in Nehemiah, the interesting thing is that uh, at this point in the, the country's history, um, uh, things, you know, the Israelites, they'd come into the promised land, uh, and it didn't take very long before they kind of reverted back to their old ways, um, and started worshiping other gods, and as a result of that, um, you know, they had some very literal consequences. They would repent, and they'd turn back to God, and then they'd fall back into sin, and it's just this big slippery slope, back and forth, back and forth, snip, snap, snip, snap. Um, and then eventually, after hundreds of years, God has had enough. And he says, okay, guys, you're going to go on uh, a long time out in a land that's not the promised land from people who are not me <laughs> uh, ruling over you. And I want you to get comfortable because you're going to be there a while. Uh, build homes. Uh, you know that famous verse from uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, where uh, God says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and give you a future. That was told to them at the beginning of the exile, <laughs> saying, I have plans for you. And like right before that verse or shortly thereafter, he's saying, okay, build homes, plant gardens, plant trees, you're going to be here. So time goes by, uh, and then eventually the people start returning to the land, the promised land, uh, to Jerusalem. There's only one problem. Jerusalem has been sacked, and it's, it's in pretty bad disarray. There's just rubble everywhere. Wall, the wall that had been there was just virtually completely destroyed uh, in, in sections. And so, uh, where we pick up in the histories in the book of Ezra is that there's a guy who has a big burden for the temple and that the temple itself was in disarray because it had been just completely looted and everything. Uh, and so in Ezra, we see the restoration of the temple. And in Nehemiah, there's a guy who is a part of the people of God, he's, but he's serving the king of Persia at the time and some family members of his come and visit, and he 
his heart just starts to break because he, he, with excitement, you know, after a hundred years of people returning or so, um, you would think there'd be some kind of good news to share. Uh, And he's like, how are the people in Judah? How is Jerusalem? How are the people? And the news was not good. Uh, He basically said they're, you know, they're demoralized, um, disgraced, um, and, you know, the wall is just completely destroyed. So this breaks Nehemiah's heart, and that's our first week that we talked about that, and that drove him to the place of prayer. Um, He could have gone about scheming. He could have thought like, well, we got to do something. Rise up. Let's do this. Um, But he first went to prayer. Then he did prayer and fasting for like four months, and he was a cupbearer to the king. He was basically the king's personal bartender. Um, uh, You know, just contextually, that would be the equivalent. Um, And uh, so the king says, you know, what's up? this is not how you normally are in front of me. Um, And, you know, where's that jolly smile that I normally see? And so Nehemiah realizes, "Uh uh-oh, I didn't put my mask on today. Uh, Not the COVID type, but just like the the front. I didn't put that on today. Well, here goes. And so he shares his heart with the king about how, um, how can I be happy when the city where my fathers lay, you know, this legacy of mine, when that lies in ruin. And so the king says, so what do you want? And Nehemiah says, I want to go rebuild it. And the crazy thing is that that happens, and that was week two. And so Nehemiah, he'd been taking these four months to pray and to fast, but then also to be kind of developing a plan, and he lays it out to the king. And the king says, go ahead, here's the credit card. Um, here's the papers that you're going to need, and here you go. And then last week, uh, well, so then in the second week, he arrives to Jerusalem, and, um, you know, he's there, doesn't tell anybody what's going on. He's just getting a lay of the land. Uh, And then eventually, in chapter 2, he tells them, this is what God has done. Let me tell you the story of how God's been meeting me lately, and how this is what God's put on my heart, and, you know, here's all that we have at our disposal, and the people said, great, let's get to work. The third week, last week, we read a bunch of names, lots of long, crazy, hairy names that just make you scratch your head um, a little bit, um, but the neat thing about chapter 3, Nehemiah chapter 3, is that uh, Nehemiah, he's laying out both his strategy, but then within that strategy, the value that he's placing on things. So the first thing that happens is the priest, the high priest steps up and he says, okay, I'm going to start rebuilding. And he starts with the sheep gate, which is where the sacrifices would come through. And then not only that, but he consecrated it. He set it apart. That's a fancy Bible word for setting apart. He made it holy saying, this is a work that is a work of God. This is not just something that we're hatching up on our own. This is something that God is doing, and we are setting it apart for him. And then you get to see uh, from that point on, people next to their places where they were starting to build the wall. Uh, Angie pointed out 
we usually debrief after a Sunday service. And I was like, how was it? And she's like, oh, it was good. Um, and something that she thought of that I hadn't put together, but I want to share with you right now as we're recapping, is that each of those people who was rebuilding the wall, they were not bricklayers. They were not your construction worker types. Uh, in other words, they were not trained individuals for this job, but the job had to get done. And God used those unqualified people to do some amazing things in rebuilding this wall. And so in connection with the fact that all those names mean that there were real people attached to those names and that you are a real person, wherever you are today in your life, whatever gifts and skills and talents and, you know, good graces that God has given you, um, don't count yourself out. Uh, just don't, don't count yourself out. There is uh, a lot of need for us as a church, uh, for us as a church family, and you have a place, and you have a purpose, uh, whether you feel qualified for it or not, um, and that is good news. Um, I, yeah, anyway, uh, so there you go, but that brings us all the way up to today. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 4, and the title for today's message is Overcoming Opposition. Overcoming Opposition. Because it's not just all sunshine and rainbows, friends. Uh, you know, overcoming opposition. Our big idea today is this. Take heart. Keep going. God is our defender and strength. Take heart keep going. God is our defender in strength. And so, in, let's go ahead and take a look at the passage now. Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Uh, we're going to see some characters that had come up before who weren't too happy about <coughs> this work that was going on um, Nehemiah 4, beginning in verse 1. So it says, When Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, that is the Jews, they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, even a fox climbing up on it, would break down their wall of stones. What an insult, friends. He's saying, this wall, it's not good. It's just going to crumble. Because a fox, it doesn't weigh that much, right? Like five pounds, maybe, maybe seven pounds. Goodness, this guy, the gall he has, goodness. All right, so Tobiah, he's not a fan either. Now, interestingly enough, Nehemiah says, picking up in verse four, hear us, 
our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs of Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us, 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. <laughs> That's easy to say. Okay, don't be afraid of them. <laughs> Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other, and each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive. The work is extensive. I lost my place. I looked up. 19? Here we go. Work is extensive. Thank you. The work is extensive and spread out. And we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helpers stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve as guards by night and as workers by day. 
neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went for water. Amen. That gives me a picture of, uh, that just came to mind. I hadn't even thought of that this week. Um, uh, that, that record of Remember the Alamo. Uh, now, uh, there's some CD situations with all of that, but where there were the people in, in that garrison in Texas who were, uh, were defending themselves against some oncoming attackers. And that pretty much there was no stop to this, not even enough time to change your clothes. Isn't that amazing to think about? So the first thing I see in our passage beyond that one is that opposition is unavoidable. Opposition is unavoidable. I wish it weren't, but it's true. Because when our defense and our resolve grows strong, enemies or, you know, those who oppose us, people who are against us, they get angry because they are losing control and influence in our lives. So for the people there, I mean, the walls had been decimated for, uh, you know, over 100 years at this point. Um, You know, these different people, they were commanders of different... uh, opposing forces to the Jews, uh, even Samaritans, who there's some bad blood there too between the Jews and Samaritans, if, uh, if you've heard of that before. And so they had a lot of control in the area where there's no leadership or no power. Uh, it's kind of like a vacuum. It's going to be filled eventually. There's, you know, uh, wherever there's a hole in leadership, there's somebody's going to fill it somehow, some way. And so they had control and they had influence. And usually, as I found uh, in my own life, when I feel out of control, that's often the times when I start to freak out. Um, Both uh, a panic, but that panic often manifests itself in anger. Like, ah, darn it, that's, that's happening. Probably a lot louder than that, but I don't want to model that for you at the moment. And so, <laughs> opposition is unavoidable. The people, they were doing God's work. This was the plan that God had laid on Nehemiah's heart. He shared it with the people. They said, yes, this is good. And so they went about carrying on, on this. And they were actually getting somewhere with this work. And the truth is, opponents to whatever you know, efforts that we're trying to do in our life, they will try and undercut those good, positive efforts with criticism. They will try to cast some measure of doubt on what we're doing. They, you know, might even question the quality or the effectiveness of whatever it might be. And so, the, way, the forms of this opposition, if we were to identify some of them in this passage, the first is that there's mocking, there's that ridicule, there's the taunting, like, ah, 
what are they doing? This isn't going to amount to much. Even a fox could crumble it down, right? Um, the second is distraction. So opposition comes in the form of mocking and distraction. They're trying to distract the people from their work. So they're, they're uh, the opposing forces, they're attacking them where they're weakest, and they're trying to get the upper hand, and they're trying to get a foothold in, you know, to, to stop this progress from happening. And the third is threat. So when all of that uh, doesn't work or isn't working as much, then comes out the brute force. That's when the armies started, you know, collecting around Jerusalem and started just attacking incessantly, trying to be among them and attack them, and the people needed to be ready. And so the good news that even though opposition is unavoidable, the resounding message I hear in Nehemiah chapter 4 is that we are to take heart. That means have courage, right? Take heart, keep going. God is our defender and strength. The second thing I see in our passage is that uh, the people, they were following God's plan through with prayer perseverance, and they were going through the process that they needed to go through. Um, they started with prayer. It's kind of an odd prayer, but in verse 4, uh, Nehemiah pauses to say, hear us, our God. He just interrupts the flow of the story just to say, just to pray. He doesn't uh, say like good people in church would say, let us pray, right? He just he leads out. He's like, hear us, O God, for we are despised. I was reminded, uh, oh, probably about 10 years ago now, no, like 12 or 13 years ago now, I was helping out a middle school camp leading worship, and um, I got to bunk with this, uh, at that time, he was an 80-year-old guy. He'd been, he was like this pioneer of this camp, and I was just fresh out of college. I don't think I'd even graduated yet, but uh, my, my summer term was over. <clears throat> and, you know, he was asking me, how's things going at your church? We didn't know each other. Um, and we were just put into this bunkhouse together. And it was so amazing to me because I was so used to, like, you know, the formal sort of faith, like, let us pray, and then you pray, right? But we're just talking, and this guy says, Father God, I thank you so much. And like, he just launches into this prayer, like, Father, here's this thing that we're going through. Tim is sharing this with me. Would you please help him in this area? The truth is, it doesn't matter how formal you are in your prayer life. The point is that you go to God in prayer. You don't have to uh, to prompt God with that. You don't have to say, okay, God, all right, oh, now that I have your ear, I'm going to pray, our Father in heaven, right? You don't have to, like, just, you, you don't have to prompt him. You, you have direct access. If you have a relationship with God through Jesus, you have access to the Father right now. Even if you are you know, in your mess of sin, whatever it might be, you have access to the Father through the blood of Christ. And you can go to the Father with your stuff, with, 
with whatever's on your heart, whatever's on your mind, you can go to him and you can say, here it is. We are despised. I am despised. Or you can cry out to him like if you are in sin and you just like, God, I need to get right with you. You can just pray. You don't have to prompt him about it. Just pray. And one of the things that I'm just so humbled by in the book of Nehemiah is Nehemiah's constant insistence on prayer. He does nothing in this book without prayer. I'm humbled that within our family of churches that we belong to, there, there's a big decision that's been coming up, and there were, or I think, truth be told, I think the decision's already been made, but it hasn't yet. That's neither here nor there. Ask me after. But the point is, we were introduced with this problem, and instead of saying, let's pray about it, even on the Zoom call, one of our pastors said, well, have you prayed about it? And we're just assuming the superintendents have, and I think that they, they were, but, but we, as, as a family, as a family of churches, we had not prayed about it. And it wasn't until a couple of months ago when the superintendent finally said, we're going to gather to pray. Pastors, here's your regional places, get together to pray. And so we've been doing that thing. Prayer is so important. Also, perseverance. It's interesting. Oh, where's it at? Oh, here we go. Um, where there's a point in verse 10 where it says, the people of Judah, so that's everybody who's there, right? People of Judah, the strength of the laborers is giving out, and there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. They were feeling pretty sapped of all strength. They'd been because uh, earlier it said that the people worked with all their heart. So they put, they were all in, 110% from the get-go, pedal to the floor, gassing it up, trying to get this done, because they were passionate about it. But in their own strength, they were, they were failing. They were realizing, we're giving her all she's got, Cap'n, and it's not happening, <laughs> Right? Uh, to borrow from Star Trek. Anyway, here we go. And so it's interesting, the people had need for perseverance, they had need for endurance, and yet they, you know, they were just so overwhelmed by everything that was happening, even though there was the good news that we're already half full, friends, we're already halfway there, and yet they're overwhelmed. And so, through it all, they followed God's plan through prayer, through perseverance, and through this process. We'll, we'll talk about it in a moment, but the process included revising the strategy a little bit to try to um, take into account the changing dynamics of what was going on. The fact that well, everything was a green light go, but now we have opposition happening. <laughs> so now we have to, you know, fight not only on just the front of, I'm, I'm an electrician and I'm being guilt, given this big rock to build in this wall, like, uh, 
you know, that kind of thing. Not only am I, I challenged by that, but now there's somebody trying to kill me. That's not good. <laughs> Just not good. It's not a good thing. And yet, through it all, they're being encouraged to take heart and to keep going because this is God's plan. Take heart. Keep going. God is our defender and strength. So, the third thing I see in our passage is that the people are being called to remember God, to establish healthy rhythms, and to be ready. To remember God, establish healthy rhythms, and to be ready. And what that readiness means is that they're ready to fight. Um, I was watching a YouTube video this week of uh, a really funny, it, it's a youth group channel, basically, where it's this guy who's like my age, um, you know, doing these funny skits that make youth pastors just laugh their heads off. It's amazing. Um, and this particular video was talking about, you know, taking something out of context. And so this person was reading in Ephesians uh, about the sword of the Spirit being the Word of God. And so he's like, awesome, I want to take I want to have the sword of the Spirit everywhere I go. So he has this big, huge, like, you know, long-handled sword, and he's carrying it with him everywhere he goes. And he's like, I'm going to go tell the middle schoolers about this. And so he goes to the school, and his friend finally intercepts him and says, whoa, hold on. What's going on? What are you doing? I got my sword here. Anyway, um, he was ready. The point is he was trying to be ready he totally missed it, but he was trying to be ready. Now, when I was studying this, that reminded me of Ephesians 6, because this is where, you know, we're not, at this point in our lives, in this place, we are not having to face the exact same kind of imminent, literal, physical threat that the Jews were facing. Um, I really hope nobody is trying to kill you, <laughs> right? Um, and if you are, we need to get you help, right? Uh, and, you know, I, both, I'm kind of being serious there, right? Um, and so how can we apply this? How can we apply the fact that Nehemiah, he was facing a literal physical thing and, uh, you know, a, a project and then a literal physical threat was coming against him, how do we apply that to our lives? Because not every single one of us has a physical project that we're involved in, that we feel like, yep, God has downloaded this into my brain, and I'm going to follow this plan, and here we go. Not all of us have that, and that's okay. Not all of us have literal physical threats against our lives, so how do we apply it? I'm glad you asked, and me too. So if you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 6, it's a popular passage. You probably already have it memorized for some of you. But the Apostle Paul, he's writing to this church. And he says, finally, be strong in the Lord, Ephesians 6.10. Be strong in, in who? In the Lord. And his mighty power put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle 
is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Amen. Now, when I was reading the interesting thing, so these people, they were, they were strapping on literal swords, like think that big double double-handed, sort of like a bat almost, but just like they were strapping on swords to try to be ready to defend themselves because as you're laying a brick, somebody's going to come at you, so you got to be ready. And you also need backup so that you're not going to die and you can keep doing the work. Now, what's interesting to me is that for us as believers, we have the Word of God, and so in that video that I, was, I referred to earlier, you know, we can take this book with us anywhere we want. And this is, you know, in, in Scripture, this is what's called the Word of God. In the Greek, it's uh, the Logos, the written Word of God, right? There, there's a lot of connotation to that. But then there's also another word in the Greek that is really fascinating to me. I learned it in Bible college. It's called the Rhema Word of God. All that really means, it's the quickened word. It's the word that comes to you by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And that comes from having read the written word. To having the written word at times, not like completely, but you know, having some verses committed to memory, not even just in your mind, but in your heart, that you know that this is what God's word says. And so no matter what comes against me, I know that my God is who he says he is and that he's placed me in this family and he's surrounded me with my brothers and sisters and my aunties and my uncles and my, my spiritual fathers and my spiritual mothers. And, you know, he's surrounded me with this family and he's given me this word to put in my heart, to hide it in my heart so that in that moment when I'm being attacked, just like Jesus in the wilderness, I can come against the devil and his schemes and say, the word of God. And to have that quickened to my, to my attention is like, but God's word says this. And in that way, we can arm ourselves. And so my encouragement to you, wherever you're at today, is that just start reading. Uh, if you don't know where to start, a really good place to start might be the Psalms. Um, if you're not so artsy of a person, uh, that may not be the best place to start. Maybe start in Proverbs, I don't know. But, um, or start in the Gospels or just anywhere, but get into the Bible. Because this is how we arm ourselves against attack. 
This is how, and not that we're going to use the Bible to intentionally, purposely attack others and to try to bludgeon them with it. Instead, we can defend ourselves and say, but God's word says this, and I'm standing on this. I'm banking my life on this because it's what God has said, not just, it's, it's a book, but it's because of who wrote it. God wrote this book for you and for me, and we can arm ourselves with it so that we can defend against the attacks of the enemy. And so that's how we overcome opposition. We, we recognize opposition is unavoidable. It's going to happen. Conflict happens. It, you know, it's one of those necessary things in life. It's going to happen. We follow God's plan through with prayer, perseverance, and going through the process. And we remember God. We establish healthy rhythms. They were burning out fast trying to build this wall. And so Nehemiah re-strategized and he said, okay, we're going to split, you know, into teams. Team A, you've got the shift right now. And team B, you're going to rest, but you're also going to be back up just in case things go down and it's not a good situation. And then not only that, but then they had a team C of just people around who weren't building to where he's saying, if you hear the trumpet, go. <laughs> just you hear a trumpet, even if it's a false alarm, you go, right? Um, you know, and so they re-strategized. They learned healthy rhythms of how to continue this work. And the amazing thing that we'll, we'll cover in the next couple of weeks is that all of the rebuilding of the wall only took 52 days. Spoiler. There, there you go. Um, please come back next week. <laughs> uh, but, you know, spoiler alert, it only took them that long because God had put this plan on their heart and he had given them the, you know, Nehemiah as a leader, the wherewithal of how to lead the people in this way, of, uh, of calling the people to constantly be remembering God, to think first about God and his kingdom and to seek him first through prayer to remember God, and not only that, but to establish healthy rhythms and to be ready, to be, you know, s strap this thing into your heart, right? You know, get, get this thing, be ready. Take heart, keep going, because God is our defender and strength. I think it's fascinating that, so at the very end it says, our God will fight for us. And yet in Nehemiah, the mysterious, beautiful thing is that God will fight for us, but he also fights for us through us. And that's why we need to be ready. So for us as a church, we have, we have a lot of momentum. We have a lot of big things coming down. Uh, the line, and I'm excited for it, and I believe God is in it. Uh, we need to be committed to prayer, first and foremost, to be praying uh, for each other, for, for the work ahead. But then also we need to be ready to know that sometimes with that, that new work and that new momentum, there's going to be opposition to it. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be criticism 
that comes our way. And that's okay, because God is going to defend us. And God is ultimately going to be the one who strengthens us. So, with that being said, let's pray.